Good morning. My name is Scott, and uh, this is the Summer of Joy at Cross Point. We're working through the book of Philippians, and I cannot help but see a little bit of humor in the fact that God waited until after a week at youth camp and until it got to 100 degrees outside here in Texas, 110 degrees, 120, 30, whatever it is, to then challenge us in Philippians 2 to never grumble. So I think all of us sitting here have some experiences that we bring with us from the previous week of possible grumbling. So uh, last week, Pastor Kai's message was titled, Everyone Has to Work. And so this week's message is just a continuation. The title is, Everyone Has to Work Without Grumbling. So uh, I had the privilege of going to camp with students. It was a fantastic week of camp. Uh, it, was, it went so wonderful. The uh, Blake White taught on Sola Fide, Faith Alone. In the evening sessions, Brad Cardwell taught uh, just how to study the Bible from Howard Hendricks on the morning sessions. We had great worship leadership. The last full day of camp, we had two hours where 700 students had a concert of prayer, and they stayed in that state of prayer and worship for two hours. It was remarkable. It was a really sweet week. However, camp can also be challenging, right? So, you know, the purpose of camp is to, to take people out of their comfort zone so we can hear from God in a different way. And we all know that going in, but then when things don't always go as planned, it can be a little tricky. And I was thinking through some of the challenging places with camp, and I found myself honing in on um, one of the more challenging places to not grumble at church camp is in the church camp bus or van. Has anyone had that experience before? Been in the church camp bus or van? Yeah, it's a, it's a different world, especially when you're on the way home. When you're on the way to camp, everyone's all fired up. But when you're on the way home, everyone stinks. It smells like a locker room, like, <laughs> like sweat, axe body spray, and bunions, just kind of all mixed together, its own little concoction. By the end of the week, every student and adult is completely dysregulated and tired and now required to be in extremely close quarters for the better part of 12 to 13 hours smelling each other. I had, the privilege, uh, I had the privilege of riding in Nick's truck on the way to camp, but on the way home, I was slated to ride the bus, the dreadful bus. So, um, what I, to be honest, I was gearing up for it mentally the day before because I knew I was going to be preaching on not grumbling today, and uh, I was trying to figure out the best way to successfully navigate that bus ride and not grumble for 13 hours and then preach about not grumbling. Um, Trying to figure that out. So uh, the evening before we left, I checked my email, and lo and behold, someone had purchased me a plane ticket to fly home. All right? I can only assume it was an angel. <laughs> There's a boarding pass waiting for me. So instead of 12 to 13 hours in the bus, I would have a one-hour and 40-minute flight home, and I was winning. Oh, I was winning. I was so thankful. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, over the bus. <laughs> so we board the flight, and it's a full flight. There's no empty seats. The plane takes off, and it's an awful flight. The turbulence at the beginning was some of the worst I've ever experienced. We had one of those surly, funny flight attendants who had all the jokes. There was a screaming child that successfully screamed for an hour and 40 minutes. There was a cat that wouldn't stop meowing. Like at first we thought it was a phone, but then it was like, no, that's a real cat. And, and it just, who brings a cat on a flight? I don't, 
confusing. The woman to my right had had one too many wine coolers and was loud talking to her boyfriend, and now we all know all of their problems. My AirPods wouldn't connect to my phone. So I'm like, does Jesus even love me? Why can't, like, we got, my AirPods wouldn't connect to my phone. And, and to top it off, the guy right behind me wouldn't stop talking about he, how he was prepared to die if the flight crashed. It was awful. But I never grumbled because I wasn't on the church bus. You see, my view of my flight was tempered by the outside reality that I wasn't on the bus. I was already winning. No matter what kind of frustrations that plane ride might have thrown my way, I knew it would be over shortly, so I enjoyed my little cup of water, and I read C.S. Lewis, and it was delightful. I think that one of the things that Paul is communicating to us in these verses about grumbling, and our first point of the morning is this. We work out our own salvation without grumbling because others are working out their salvation too. There's a bigger picture there's a bigger reality that sort of tempers what we do and how we move. It tempers our discontentment. When we encounter undesirable circumstances and situations, what is most important is not that we voice our disapprovals and our frustrations, but that we keep working. I want you to notice in this set of verses, it doesn't just say, don't grumble. I mean, that'd be easy, right? I could just say, all right, here's the sermon. Don't grumble. And we pray and we go home. But it's, it's bigger than that. It's, it says, do all things without grumbling. So the focus is on the doing. The focus is on the work that we have and that we're called to in life and the way that we do that work. And I just want to, just a quick reminder when we're talking about work, we're in a section of scripture where we're talking about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so we know from that that grumbling is not in keeping with the fear and trembling and if you turn over just a few pages in your Bible to Colossians 3, uh, it's Thessalonians, I went more than a few pages, yeah, Colossians 3, verse 17, it helps us to, to kind of reorient what, what work we're talking about. Um, it says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as we're talking about the work, and everyone has to work without grumbling, I just want to remind us all this morning that there are no categories of, of sacred and secular for the Christian. Whatever we're doing is sacred. We are called to be holy. We're called to be set apart. So you can't sit through listening to a passage like this and be like, okay, so I can go to my secular job and complain because it stinks. But when I'm doing church work, I can't complain because God's good. No, God's good through all of it, and so there's no category. So if you have categories in your mind this morning of like secular and sacred, for, for the believer, everything is sacred. Everything is designed. Your entire life, your, your created purpose is to glorify God by not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. So all is sacred. So I want to dig into these two words that Paul is warning us against uh, before we move forward. Do all things without grumbling or questions, or another translation says, do all things without murmurings or disputings. So murmurings used in this sense are used in the sense of the secret debate among people and of a displeasure or a complaining that can be more private and inward. So he's saying no grumbling. He's saying there's, there's kind of an inward, you know, thing that's going on with you. 
and, and, and it has to do with um, complaining and of, of expressing inwardly the displeasure. And then disputings can be internal and external expressions of doubt. So the stuff inside starts coming out while you're in the midst of doing the work that God calls you to do. So I think if we kind of take and put all that together, what we find is the grumbling and the questioning, what we can picture is indicative of, of a Christian doing work. All the work is sacred. Whether it's stuff at camp, whether it's stuff at our jobs, whether it's stuff at home, whether it's work out salvation, the Christian is doing work, but is inwardly feeling the displeasure and complaining privately, which causes doubt about the work itself. So you begin to complain inwardly, and you're like, man, what am I even doing? What am I doing here? Is this even worthwhile? This is, this is bad. And then it goes from inward to doubt to outward, often spilling over into secret debate among people related to the frustration that caused the doubt. It's not hard for us to see that. A lot of times it starts off as just venting, right? Does anyone like to vent? Oh, I love to vent, right? And that venting, and I just want to vent, just get some things off my chest. Maybe we pray about it so we don't feel bad about, you know, what we just did. And, 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 it, and it starts there. It starts inside, and then doubt forms, and then it comes out, and then usually there's an outward expression. And it brings us to our second point this morning, that your work is not as effective when you grumble about it. Your work is not as effective when you grumble about it. Work done while grumbling undoes the work. Verses 14 through 16 in chapter 2 of Philippians are one long sentence completing one big important thought that Paul wants the church to heed. Do all things without grumbling that, there's a so that, it's like that's the, he says don't grumble and then he gives us a reason. So that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. Church, we are a people set apart for God. That's what the word holy is. It's set apart. And so there's something in, this, in these passages that is connecting our holiness with our fight against grumbling and complaining and vexing and fretting. We're set apart for God, dwelling in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. And by God's design, we're supposed to shine as bright lights, but grumbling dulls our brightness. Grumbling dulls our brightness. The language of this passage is indicative of Deuteronomy 32.5, where the wilderness generation of Israel had their spiritual progress thwarted by grumbling and complaining. They had been freed, but now they were in the wilderness, and they didn't let a bigger picture inform their situation. They didn't let the big picture of their freedom temper the frustrations that they were experiencing in the desert, and it got in the way of their spiritual progress. That's the imagery that Paul is dialing into here. But I want you to notice the reason that Paul gives for not grumbling. Do not grumble so that you may remain blameless and innocent. So there's a goal here of blamelessness and innocence, and I want to look into those words because blameless does not mean sinless. If blameless means sinless, we're all like out because we all sin. So what does blameless mean? Blameless is a picture of being all in. Um, have y'all seen the, the, there's a video online of this guy who's acting like kind of a kiddo and he does like everything 110%. So he does the dishes 110%. Then he runs to the other room and he puts his clothes away. And he does all that. I know a little kid. Um, his name's Nathan. And he's like the epitome of blameless. Like he can't do anything halfway. Everything he does is to the greatest extent with which he can do it. And he is always sweating because that's, he's just blameless. He's all in. 
And so this word blameless is, is indicative of being all in. So the passage seems to indicate that it's hard to be all in on the work that God calls you to if you're grumbling about the work. So work done while grumbling undoes the work. So what about that word innocent? What's the opposite of innocent? Guilty, right? And so it seems that when we grumble, it seems that work done while complaining about the work is the kind of work that's guilty of a charge. If we're doing our work in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation among whom we shine as bright lights by God's design, Paul is saying that when you complain about the work, the twisted and crooked generation can rightly discount the work by accusing you of being guilty of complaining about the work. Or to say it another way, in our third point of the morning, work done while grumbling is a type of hypocrisy, especially gospel work. And we, I, I was guilty of it this week at camp. I was guilty of it preparing the sermon. Like, work done, gospel work, especially done while grumbling, is a type of hypocrisy. And a lost world will sniff out hypocrisy quickly. That, that, it's kind of, it gets kind of political, where if someone doesn't like your message, they just wait for your words and actions to not match. And then, boom, that's all they need to discount what you are doing and what you're saying because your words and your actions didn't match. He's saying you're to be blameless and innocent. And if you grumble, that innocence goes away and it can be replaced with this charge of your words and actions don't match, so there's some form of hypocrisy. And I think it goes something like this. I think if you kind of pictured what the lost and crooked generation might be saying to the one who is not moving in this blamelessness and this innocence, they could say, you say that my heart needs to be changed by Jesus, but your heart complains about the very work that might bring about my heart change. Let me say that again. Imagine a lost, twisted, crooked generation seeing that our actions and our words aren't matching because we're doing a work that we think is really important, but then we're complaining and vexing and fretting and grumbling, and they could look at us in that moment and say, you say that my heart needs to be changed by Jesus, but your heart complains about the very work that might bring about my heart change. Or to say it another way, you say that this is important, but it seems you would rather be doing something else. People are listening to our words and watching our actions and making sure that they match, and when they match, we shine brightly. Or to say it another way, they could look at us and say, you say that the, message of, the mission of the church is actually subject to the conditions that you prefer. Is the mission of the church subject to the conditions that we prefer? Or does it, does it carry on? Does it march forward regardless of the conditions because we know how to do it without grumbling? It's challenging. And what a humbling reminder for us this morning that grumbling is not just a behavior problem, it's a heart problem. Does anyone have children and you've said, stop complaining, and they just stopped? I'm still waiting on it. I'm holding out. But it doesn't happen that way. Quit complaining. And there's like 10 more complaints that come, and usually everyone's pointing their fingers outward. But it's a behavior, it's not just a behavior problem, it's a heart problem. That's why we have to keep telling our kids to stop complaining. That's why we have to keep reminding ourselves to stop complaining. And it stems from discontentment. So roll with me on this little thing here. Some of us are problem solvers. Like my, my role here at church is I'm in an operations role and I, they give me the, the opportunity to teach and preach from time to time. So some of us are problem solvers and we tend toward looking for what can be better. 
we're always assessing. So if you're sitting there and that, that rings true with you, if you're like assessing what I'm saying right now and how I'm saying it and how I might be able to do it better, that might be you. But we're always assessing. But assessment void of contentment and recounting God's goodness can make us g- guilty of a very grave sin. And it's, a, it's, a, it's just a short step over. Some of us this morning may be blamelessly trying to make things better by providing solutions to real problems in all the areas where we serve. But some of us might also have gone beyond faithful problem solving to being guilty of the sin of having a critical spirit. I can't tell you where you sit this morning. I'm pr- this is where I'm praying the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us because it's it, a lot of us are wired in a way, how can it be better? How can we give good feedback? How can it get constructive? How can we grow as a church in a healthy way? How can we steward the growth? How can we make all the plans that we need to make and make them well? And it's easy to go from that to being guilty of the sin of having a critical spirit where generally your spirit is just critical. About 20 years ago or so, back when I was in youth ministry, I had a parent who was constantly giving me feedback, and the more feedback I got, I wasn't always looking forward to future conversations. I always felt like he tried to kind of keep his thumb on me. I always felt like my ministry, no matter how hard I tried, in his mind was never good enough. He seemed very critical to me with, with little to no encouragement, so I took him to lunch. I like to deal with things directly, so I took him to lunch, and I, and I asked him about it. And I'll never forget, he, he, uh, he looked at me across the table and he said, when it comes to my children, your ministry will never be good enough. I'll always push you. I was like, thank you? Like, <laughs> like okay, lunch, lunch is over. Um, when it comes to my children, your ministry will never be good enough. I'll always push you. And that was the day that I learned the difference between constructive criticism and being guilty of the sin of a critical spirit. But it wasn't at all difficult for me to relate to that parent. Honestly, for me, discontentment is a daily struggle. Daily, like a thorn. When you want things to be better and you're constantly looking for ways to make that happen, grumbling is always lying close at hand. Like the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the devil's over here, and one of the ways that he devours is grumbling. So you, you, if you always want things to be better, you're always looking and assessing and all that, it's like you've got to be careful because we know of this threat over here called grumbling. Daily, I have to fight against that. It does not take much to jump from constructive assessment to inward complaining in my own heart where I begin to doubt what we're even doing to the outward external expressions of doubt among a small group of people to whom you're usually just venting and wanting to share a prayer request or something. But the moment that you lean into your grumbling, you're leaning away from the work that God has called you to. Let me say that again. The moment that you're leaning into your grumbling and that outward expression that's been stirring inside, you're really leaning away from the work that God has for us. And it's a good work, and we know that, but our hearts deceive us. In the 1600s, a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Anybody ever heard of it or read it or tried to read it? Yep, all right, just just you and me. Yep. So um, 
The first time I read it, I felt like this guy from hundreds of years ago was just like reading my mail. It was one of those weird moments where you're reading something that's from another century, which, by the way, it's great if you're a reader to oftentimes occasionally read from another century. And I'm reading it going, God, this guy knows who I am. Let me back up and be a little more honest, actually. Uh, I was meeting with someone to talk through the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And the, the first observation that both me and this person brought to the table when we sat to meet for breakfast to talk about the rare jewel of Christian contentment, the first observation neither of us even had to think about was like, why is the font so small in this book? Like we're literally meeting to discuss the rare jewel of Christian contentment and we are thoroughly discontent with the font of the 1600s literature. And we realize maybe we should keep reading. Maybe we have a problem and the Lord can help us with it. So what Jeremiah Burroughs explains is he says that our souls have a voice that only the Lord can hear. Some of us can't hide it. Some of us are just outwardly upset. But he said a lot of us have this voice in our soul that the Lord can hear. And we think it's okay as long as no one else hears it, but the Lord hears it. He says that outwardly we're seemingly happy, but inwardly we are vexing and fretting. He compares us to a shiny leather shoe that looks nice from the outside, but inside it pinches the flesh. When I was growing up, for Easter Sunday, we always got new shoes, and they were dumb. They were like hard leather, and they were hard to walk in, but mom's like, you're going to wear those shoes. And, uh, and so we did. And so you're kind of walking like this on Easter because the shoes hurt. Outside, they look super nice, a little Easter baby. That's fantastic. Inside, they pinch the flesh. And that's what he's comparing us to. He said a lot of times everything looks all right outside, but inside we are vexing and we are fretting and our flesh is in pain. And in response to those who have a fairly loud inward voice that can quickly lead to discontentment, Jeremiah Burroughs says this from, you know, hundreds of years ago. We should prize duty more highly than to be distracted by every trivial occasion. The authority of the command so overawes his heart that he is willing to spend himself and be spent in discharging it. Let me read that again. From the 1600s, we should prize duty more highly than to be distracted by every trivial occasion. The authority of the command, the authority of God, the authority of the one who is giving us what we need to do in life so overawes our hearts that we are willing to be spent in discharging whatever God calls us to. He says that should be the condition of our inward voice as it plays outward. And then verse 16 reminds us kind of how that happens. Look at verse 16. We're bright lights in the midst of a, quick, a twisted and crooked generation. It says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I, Paul, am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. But there at the beginning, he says, holding fast to the word of life. We must hold fast to the word of life. As we're talking about grumbling, it's, it's an extremely important point. Many of us overestimate our own strength. We think, well, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've done 50 VBSs. Yeah, I'll do one. I'll launch off into that. I've been to a lot of camps. Yeah, I can do that. 
I'm a Christian. I've been doing this for years, and, and, and we launch off into things, and oftentimes we overestimate our own strength physically sometimes. I'm tired from camp, but also spiritually. We think we can spend little to no time in God's word, and then we launch off into some endeavor or some serving opportunity only to find ourselves grumbling and mostly frustrated with the circumstances and the people. Like I find myself regularly saying, if everyone would just listen to me, Everything would go great, right? The problem with, with other people is that they don't do it the way I want them to do it. Does anyone struggle with that? Everyone's trying not to make eye contact. But yeah, that, that we, we have that struggle, and we find ourselves trying to serve. We're overestimating our strength, trying to lean in, trying to serve, and then we find ourselves grumbling. We find ourselves saying things that we really don't want to say, but we're just so frustrated. But by God's design, we have an indicator. What I just described is almost like a check engine light on a car. You know, it, it lights up whenever something needs attention. So I think what we're seeing in these verses, when we're told to hold fast to the word of life in this fight against working while grumbling, it's like a check engine light in a car. If you're trying to serve God and others and you start grumbling and complaining and recruiting other people into your little group so that you can complain together and you can vent, it's like this personal check engine light that's telling us that we're a bit low on the word. I mean, it, boom, it's on. And you, okay, I need more time in the word. I need more time with my Lord. All scripture, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness that we can do what God calls us to do. We are fools to think we can launch off into any endeavor without this. It is what equips us. It is what steadies us. It is what anchors us to our Lord. It helps us to have insight. It helps us to persevere. We must hold fast to the word of life. When we grumble, it's like a light coming on telling us we're low on the word. In other words, the only way to not grumble is to hold fast to the word of God. Some of us who have been Christians for a long time really need to hear that this morning. We just sort of, it's like when you've been in a job for a long time, you're like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. We kind of do that with Christianity. I know what I'm doing. Shut up. Go do what I told you to do. <laughs> but, but we're void of that, that uninterrupted, consistent pattern of life that reflects time in, in the word of God. Some helpful verses from the word of God to cling to is the reminder that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. If you show up at all the events and you're like, all right, what y'all got for me? Jesus came to be served, not, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. I almost said it backwards. Y'all would have remembered that, right? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. That's something out of God's word that anchors us in those moments where grumbling begins to bubble up. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Isaiah 58 says, pour yourself out for the afflicted, and your gloom will be turned to the noonday. I love this verse, because it, like, it, it, it explains that like, when we pour ourselves out for others, the way that Jesus did, and, we, and when we try to walk in, in what Jesus walked in, and we, we, we take up our cross, and, and, we, and we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, when you pour yourself out for others, it actually is a way to fight against like, depressive feelings. It says your, your, your gloom will be turned to the noonday when you serve other people. Like sometimes I'm just tired and I need that reality. I need to go tap into, I mean faith is ultimately laying hold of the promises of God and there's so many promises and you can't know those promises without being in the word. 
And once we're in the word, we have the promises. And in those moments of struggle, we can say, okay, I know that if I keep serving, there's actually great joy in it. The attitude that I'm struggling with on the inside can change if I continue to pour myself out for other people. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Count others as more significant than yourselves. That's from the word. We hold fast to the word. That's the kind of stuff we remember. Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent on the souls of God's children. So when we're struggling with gladness while we're being spent, we can go to that and hold on to it, hold fast to it, as Paul says. One of my favorites is, uh, especially when, when our kids were younger, because there's, no, there's two kinds of tired that are different than every other kind of tired. There's camp tired and there's newborn tired, right? Do we all agree? And so I was at camp and there was a couple with a newborn. And I was like, oh, Lord, just let me pray for you right now. Just put some hands on you. Like that is, that is you are taking newborn tired to camp and you got the combination. And th- there's just different levels of tired. And one, one verse that I always went to when it was the middle of the night I have a horrible default of when I'm woken from a, woken? When I'm awoken? I don't know. When someone wakes me up, I'm mad. That's what I'm trying to say. Like, I just default to anger. Like, I got to be careful because sometimes I just come up swinging. I don't know. It's a heart problem, but it is what it is. But I'm like, I just remember feeling when I was so tired, and I, I came across a verse that says that God will, he, he works through us with his energy that he powerfully works within us. With his energy that he powerfully works within. He doesn't even just say, all right, well, you got like a little bit of energy and I'm going to make the most of it. God is saying through that word, my energy is going to be in you and I will powerfully work my energy through you. And when you're exhausted, it's like, well, praise Jesus for that, right? That he's, he's going he's to give me energy. So, so when we're holding fast to the word, those are the things that we can use to counsel our own souls. And then Paul provides a grumble-free solution to the Philippian church. Do you see it in those last verses? He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So he's saying, if all y'all do is keep grumbling, I'm gonna, uh, my, work is, uh, my work in the gospel is, is in vain. That, that's, he's connecting those two things. He goes on to say, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So you see this invitation at the end of this section of scripture where Paul is saying, I mean, he's in prison, he's beaten. We know all those things about Paul. And he's saying, even if I'm to be poured out, like that's how you feel at the end of serving. You feel poured out. You feel kind of empty. And he says, in that empty feeling moment, in that poured out moment, he says, even if I'm poured out, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And our final point for the morning, as Paul's reminding us that in order to avoid grumbling, that we might be bright lights in a dark world, as Paul invites us in, um, we have the final point that you can't complain while you're in a rejoicing state of gladness. You can't complain when you're in a state a rejoicing state of gladness. Paul's had plenty of trials. I mean, he can speak to this. And he's like, you know what's better than grumbling? A rejoicing state of gladness. Join me. And it makes me want to join Paul because I have such a tendency towards grumbling 
and discontentment. You can't complain while in a rejoicing state of gladness. I want to close by reading something from Philippians 2 um, at, the, at the beginning of the chapter. Remember I said that uh, earlier that, that grumbling isn't just a behavior problem, it's a heart problem? It, it wouldn't be enough for me to say, okay, you've heard all the bad things about grumbling this morning, so you better go and not grumble. That would be insufficient. At camp, I was teaching students this week about purity. And I said to them, I said, um, purity is not the act of trying to not do certain things until you get married so you make yourself pure. Purity is allowing Jesus to change your heart and count his righteousness as yours and thereby make you pure. It's the same thing with grumbling this morning. It's not enough to just change your behaviors. It's a heart problem. And what we need is to spend time looking to Jesus, the, the author, the perfecter of our faith, looking at what he has done to take the sin. Our sin removes, it separates us from God. It separates us from each other. So grumbling separates us from God and each other. And he dies on the cross. He takes our sins upon himself. He, he clothes us. We have imputed righteousness. He just counts it as ours. And then he brings us back into this relationship. And we have a heart that can actually change. I'm emphasizing that because I, I hear a lot of people use language like, well, that's just who I am. And that's not true. Actually, if you're a Christian and you're struggling with something that is opposite of what God says, the counsel to you is, hey, that's not who you are. That's not your identity in Jesus. There's lots of questions today about identity. And our identity must be firmly rooted in Christ to do what Paul is calling us to. So let's just look at Jesus for a few moments as we close before we take the supper. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, those are all things that are not grumbling. Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. You can empty yourself in a joyful way. You should be poured out in a joyful way. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gives us new hearts to help us put into action not complaining and not grumbling and not acting on that discontentment that so often just sort of swells up inside of us.